Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Bashi, you know, she, she was a tremendous asset to Xerxes, but because he let alcohol get the best of him and his decision making and also his advisors, it cost her dearly, but she made a stand and I, I applaud her bravery for making a stand like that, but it did cost her and it probably cost her significantly financially and all that stuff because she probably lost everything that she had more than likely as a punishment for standing up for what's right. Have you ever stood up for something you know is right and lost it all? This can be one of the most difficult things to do. And when it's all said and done, sometimes we have regrets after seeing everything that we've lost. Today, Pastor James wants you to know that you need to stand up for what you believe in, regardless of the ramifications. Even if you have everything that you could possibly want, if you're compromising on your beliefs, it's all for nothing. Don't back down. Instead, let God's power work through you to stand firm. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Esther chapter 2 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. guys some context in case you don't know what's going on, but the setting of this is in Susa, and that's in Persia, which is modern day Iran right now, right? Like, because they changed the name, not even, almost 100 years ago, they changed the name of it from Persia to Iran, and so that's where this is happening. So in the capital of Susa, which is right by like the Euphrates River, close to Babylon and all that, this is where this takes place. We just went through the book of Daniel, and we saw Darius with the Medes and the Persians, they, they conquered Babylon and they took over for a meantime. And then they would be conquered as well. So this story of Esther, technically it happens in between chapter six and seven of Ezra. And that's, uh, you know, chronologically, that's when that happens. But it's also within the time frame of like when Daniel was on the scene and the Medes and the Persians had taken over. So there was a captivity, then they got to go back home. And then Esther is one of the several several thousands of people that chose to stay in Persia. Not everybody went back. Most people actually stayed in Persia. And that's where this takes place. So you have Xerxes, who's the king there. And his, in the Bible, it starts off saying he's Ahasuerus, but his, uh, you know, his, his historical name is Xerxes. That's who he is, okay? He was an okay leader um, in one sense. I mean, he did conquer quite a bit. He had a short temper and all this good stuff led to lots of bad decisions. Anybody relate? Yeah, I can. Um, so uh, he just made some pretty dumb decisions, honestly. Even, even as a military leader, he, he made some horrible decisions. He threw a party in chapter one that lasted for six months for all the important people of the world. And then he threw a week-long party for the rest of his citizens, okay? And the the reason behind the party was to gain support because he wants to conquer the new threat, which is the Greeks, okay? The Grecian army was on the hunt. They were on the prowl. They're like the leopard with four heads out of the book of Daniel. So he sees them as a threat. He wants to gain support. So he's going to go and have a military victory. So he thinks over these guys, but it's not going to work out in his favor. And that's where in between chapter one and chapter two of Esther, you have three to four years that go by. And in those three to four years, that's when those military 
defeats happen for Xerxes. He lost to the, um, the Spartans, right? We know there's a movie, 300 or something like that. It's not historically accurate at all, but um, I don't know if those dudes are walking around with, you know, showing off their abs and shirtless and all that good stuff. I have no idea. Um, I haven't really even seen the movie, but um, I remember the previews. But uh, it's some, you know, some kind of, you know, truth to that, to the Hollywood display of that. But um, he, he lost there, and that was uh, to uh, Leonidas, and he was the guy leading the 300. Um, so, and where was that? was the, um, the pass, uh, Ther- Thermopylae or something like that. So he, he suffered a defeat there, but then he also suffered the defeat at Thermopolis. That's the guy who built the army, who built, I mean, sorry, built a navy and defeated him at Salamis. So two military defeats, this king threw the big party, gained support, all that good stuff. Now he's got to go back, and he's, he's a loser. He's a loser. He lost. He lost big time. And so now he goes back, and, and what happened at the end of chapter one was he kicked out his, his queen because he brought her in. He's wasted, and all the guys are wasted at this party, and his wife is very beautiful. Vashti, really, her te- that name technically means beautiful. So Vashti is just that. He brings her in and wants to show off her beauty to all these people because he's just bragging about all the stuff he has. And she says, no. She's like, no, you're not going to show me off. You're not going to display my beauty for for all these other knuckleheads. And so they come up with a brilliant plan to kick her to the curb and then make a law that all wives have to, like, submit to their husbands. Um, and what's fascinating about that, because I've been doing a lot of research today on the Persian Empire, because I just found out, I like, I don't know anything. I, I know very little about, um, you know, the Middle East. I know some things. I've been over there a few times and all that stuff. But uh, I was doing a bunch of research, and what I learned from doing some historical stuff uh, concerning Persia is that women from Persia were actually, like, pretty elevated. They weren't looked down upon like we would think. Queen Vashti probably would have owned property that exclusively belonged to her and not to Xerxes. She could have started her own business. A lot of the women in the Persian culture, especially back then, were actually valued. Some of them were even military leaders, and they were successful military leaders. So it goes against what we see commonly from, especially from that region of the world where women are suppressed and not thought of as, like, as equal to men. But in Persia, it wasn't necessarily like that. Now, they weren't on the same level as some guys, but they definitely were elevated higher than most other women within that region. I just find that fascinating. So Vashi, you know, she, she was a tremendous asset to Xerxes, but because he let alcohol get the best of him and his decision-making and also his advisors, it cost her dearly, but she made a stand, and I, I applaud her bravery for making a stand like that, but it did cost her, and it probably cost her significantly, financially, and all that stuff, because she probably lost everything that she had, more than likely, as a punishment for standing up for what's right. But that happens, and then you get into chapter two. So you go through the the wars and all that stuff. Xerxes comes home, verse one of chapter two. It says, after Xerxes' anger had subsided, so that, that does go back into you know, the disrespect he felt from Queen Vashti, but it also includes the suffering of defeat. His pride has been wounded. 
After that had subsided, he began to think about Vashti and what she had done and the, the decree he had made. And so what we know about Persian law as well is when they make a decree, you cannot change that decree. I mean, it's set in stone. There's no going back. So even if he wanted to reinstate Vashti as a queen, he could not do that. He wouldn't be able to. But his, his attendants, his advisors, they step in, verse 2, it says, so the personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find a beautiful, uh, beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province. Remember, there's 127 of these things, provinces, to bring these beautiful women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young, women who, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. Yeah, I, yeah. Are you surprised? No, you're not at all. So he put the plan into effect. So he's feeling bummed out because he comes back suffering defeat and you know, his, his ride or die is gone because he's kicked her to the curb and he's like, can't do anything about that. And he's lonely, but he has a harem already. So he can have his needs met and, and, you know, through all these other ladies, but he's got no queen. He has no queen. And so his advisor is probably fearful that he might actually try to get Vashti back in. And if he does that, then they know they're dead because if Vashti comes back, She's gunning for those knuckleheads, right? Because they're the ones who suggested that he kick her out, okay? So they're like, oh, wait, hold on, king. Let's, let's create a beauty pageant. Let's do, you know, Persia's, you know, next top model or something like that. Like, let's search all 127 provinces for the, be- the most beautiful young virgins, and we'll bring them to you, and you can sort through them and figure out which one you like best, that's their plan. And this guy, Xerxes, is like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That sounds like a great idea. And so the search goes out, 127 provinces. These guys all go looking for the best, the most attractive. And they're going to take them from their homes to the capital city, where they probably will never see their families again. You need to understand this about a harem. Once you enter the harem, you don't leave the harem. Whether they're picked or not, there's no going back. Like, their lives are over. Their lives are over when that decision's made. So you would have some families that would absolutely be presenting their daughter hoping that they win the lottery, hoping that the king picks her, because if the king picks her, then they'll probably be taken care of. So they're presenting their best. They're probably, you know, you know urging their daughter or daughters to participate. But I would imagine that there are some families who, we, what we know from uh, outside biblical um, sources, uh, that Mordecai, who's the Jew in this story with his, uh, with his cousin, but he actually, Josephus, who's a historian, Jewish historian, tells us that he actually tried to hide Esther. But when you have somebody as beautiful as Esther, there's no hiding her. There's no hiding her because the stories, the rumors will circulate of like, oh, no, there's a, really, there's a really attractive one that lives there, okay? So history tells us that Mordecai tried to do that but was unsuccessful. But just so you understand, when they go out to search for all these young virgins, when they leave home, there's really no going back. There's no going back. It wasn't like, I lost, and so I get to go home now. No, it's you lost. Now you go to his harem, and he can still have his way with you if he wants to, but you will live in the palace for the rest of your life. Granted, for some of them, 
economically, that might be a better scenario than what they had, but still you're a prisoner for the rest of your life, is really what that equals to. So just so you know, when, it's, when you're searching out for all these virgins, and that's really what it means. Because it it, we look at this, sometimes we're like, ugh, you know, these kings and their need for, you know, going up above and beyond and overboard with all their, you know, seeking pleasure and things like that. There is that, it highlights that, but the depravity of his heart. But it also is like there are people that are left in the wake trying to fulfill his own desires. Always try to bring the realness to the stories of like, hey, are we thinking about these people? <laughs> I know the story is, it's about Esther and it's about Mordecai and it's, it's ultimately about God and how, how in control he is, but it's always a good idea to approach the scriptures and think about everybody within the story and even the nameless virgins, which there's going to be around 400 virgins that get brought to the king. 400. Crazy. So, Verse 5, it says, at that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, okay? Mordecai, he's, he's a little Jewish man. His name actually means that he is little. He's a, he's a little Jewish guy, okay? That's who he is. That's who Mordecai is. He's the son of Yair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was the descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, uh, who with King Jehoiachin, of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So he was taken from Jerusalem. He was taken from Israel as a captive and brought to Babylon. So he would have been there at the same time Daniel was there. Okay? He just wasn't in the palace ruling or you know, having the role that Daniel would have or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego. But he was there. Verse 7, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. Hadassah. And Hadassah, or that means myrtle. Uh, Hadassah in English would mean myrtle, which Hadassah is probably a better way to go. Um, Myrtle's an interesting name. So Hadassah, who is also called Esther. Now that's her Persian name, which means star in Persian. But in Hebrew, Esther means hidden, which is interesting because her cousin Tried to hide her is what history tells us. The other thing that's cool about that is God is hidden in this book. There's no reference to God at all. There's no reference to prayer. There's no reference to anything like that. But he's present in every single page of this cool little story. He's just kind of hidden. So her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Her Persian name is Esther. And we're going to go with that because the book is called Esther. And again, in Persia, that means star. It says, when her father and mother died, so she's an orphan, Mordecai, her cousin, adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. What a guy. What a great guy. So he would do that for his cousin. Her parents died somehow. We don't know exactly how they died, but she was left as an orphan, and he brought her into his family immediately. And he was going to take care of her because that's what family should do. That's what family should do. Nobody should be out left hanging. You bring them in. And Esther was brought in by Mordecai, and he loved her, and he was going to take care of her as if she was his own daughter. Now, what you need to understand, too, is at the beginning of that verse, it says she was very beautiful and lovely. When the Bible says that somebody is very beautiful and lovely, you need to understand that it's somewhat underestimating. I mean, it's not like giving you the full, like, if it says that, it means she was the most beautiful in form and features is technically what it says there in the original language. Like she's, she's hot. Like she's just, she's smoking. Like she is incredibly attractive. 
That's Esther. She is, she's the best. Out of 127 provinces, she is considered by the king the most attractive female in his known world. She's tops. She's beautiful, which is, it's just incredible. Uh, the Bible says that about only like a handful of people. David, David was a he was an attractive man, is what the Bible would say, right? Like Joseph. Joseph's a classic one, right? Joseph was good looking, is what the Bible says. You need to understand, that dude's a stud. Like, he was a stud. So when the Bible says somebody's good looking, it means like, no, like, they're really good looking, right? Like, Joseph was. So he complimented David on his looks. Here, Esther, it's saying, she's, she's a star. She's beautiful. So you have Mordecai, he hears, he knows the, the decree's gone out there and all that good stuff. Verse 8, it says, as a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, with the other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. She had that thing, kind of like how Daniel had that thing when Daniel showed up. The guy who was in charge of him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was impressed by something within them, something. There was something about them that he was impressed by. Esther shows up, and this guy, Haggai, is like, there's something different about you. It's not that you're just beautiful, but your beauty is like, it's not just surface level. There's something about you that goes beyond the surface. It goes deeper than that. He noticed that, that she's special. And he treats her kindly, shows her favor. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments, right? So he's almost like, like I hope you win. Um, he's like, he's going to help her out. The, the special menu that he's given to her, that could include Persian food that would be technically unclean for the, for the Jews living in that region. It may have been something along the lines of what Daniel and his guys had gotten because they got a special menu as well. And they they said, we don't want to eat the king's delicacies. Just give us vegetables, vegetables and water. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's, his guy was like, I can't do that. You know, he's going to kill me because you guys look so weak. And they're like, trust us. Just give us the veggies. Nothing wrong with eating your veggies, right? Your mom and parents, parental figures have been trying to tell us that all year or all our whole lives, right? Eat your veggies, eat your veggies. I don't, know what, I don't know what Esther's technically eating here, but she gets special treatment. And she gets these spa treatments as well, these beauty treatments. It goes on to say he also assigned her seven maids specifically chosen or specially chosen for the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. So she's gained favor with this guy. She gets these beauty treatments. And what I learned today as well is like Persia back then, they were on top of the beauty treatment thing. They already had it going on. They already had it going on. They had, you know, they, we'll see in a second how they would like soak these girls in, you know, baths and like try to infuse their body with like, like good smelling stuff. But they make up and all that, like they were already doing that. They were already doing that. They figured out ways to try to lighten the skin, right? Because that was just more of a, a show. You know, we, we've seen that throughout history. Uh, if you have darker skin, um, it means that you're probably working outside a lot which means you're, you know, don't have like you, your place within society is on a lower rung kind of a deal because people who stay indoors all the time, fair skin, but it also means that they probably have lots of money. So they came up with treatments of like how to lighten their skin, so to speak, a lot of concealer, right? That hides blemishes, that's what that's called. It makes sense to me if that's what it's called. Um, but they had that, they were doing um, makeup and, and all that stuff. 
Like they were already doing that in Persia. So Esther gets that treatment. Verse 10, though, it gives us a little bit of uh, background into how she's functioning within the palace. Esther had not told anybody or anyone about her nationality and family background, the fact that she's from Israel and the fact that she's a Jew, because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. He's like, don't play that card yet. He's not telling her to lie. He's not, try- he's not telling her to be deceitful or anything like that. He's just letting her know, like, you don't have to communicate that information just yet. And it's the same thing for you and I today. You don't have to tell everybody your business. You don't have to. Not, not even in one meeting or anything like that. We talked about that with sharing testimonies, how you can share your life story, but you, you don't have to include all the stuff. Sometimes just a short, simple thing is, is best. And then if you have, are able to engage with somebody in greater detail, then, you know, if the Lord sees fit, then you can share in detail what's going on. If a Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses shows up at your door, you don't have to let them know you're a Christian right away. In fact, it's probably better that you don't, and then engage in a conversation with them. And then at the right time, then you play the card, like, yeah, I'm a believer. Um, Actually, I'm a Christian. Let me ask you some questions about what you believe, because I've done my homework. And what do you guys say about this verse over here? It's her living in the palace. Mordecai's like, look, um, you got selected to go there. Just go there, live there, do what they tell you to do. You don't have to disclose all your information at the get-go, okay? And they probably weren't asking her, what's your nationality? Where are you from? Well, you got me. You, you picked me up. You know where I'm from. I'm from over there, right? Like, so they probably weren't asking those questions, but Mordecai's like, hold on to that one. And we know why, because the providence of God, and what that means is like he's in control of all the details, that card would, be, would need to be played at the right moment in the right time. And that information shared at the right time would actually save the nation of Israel there. So again, it's just a good idea to, you know, there's some cards you don't have to play right away, and it's probably wise to hold on to some of them, okay? That's what happens here. So she's told by her cousin, Mordecai, just don't let him know, just hold on to that one. It goes on to say, every day, Mordecai, verse 11, would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So he was constantly checking in on his cousin because he loved her so much. He's like walking by there, purposely walking close to there so he can get updates either from Esther or from Haggai, the guy who was in charge of her care, and just understanding like, okay, what's going on? What's going on? Because this is like a whole, this is a year-long process. It wasn't just like this all happened in an instant. This is a whole year-long process. And it even explains that to us. It says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given a prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months, a year of beauty treatments. That seems like a lot. There's some reasons why, okay? Let's continue reading it. I'll, I'll throw out some of those reasons. Six months with oil of myrrh, basically just soaking and, you know, getting that oil of myrrh in your pores. So you're sweating myrrh, basically, at the end of this 12-month thing. And, you know, back then, they may have had some natural deodorants, but people probably weren't wearing them. And in hot environments, the stench was real, okay? So if you have odor issues, you can be thankful that you live in the era in which you live, where deodorant and cologne, I mean, cologne, they had perfume and cologne back then, but not everybody was using it. So they're soaking these girls in myrrh for six months. 
Our God is the God of the unexpected. He takes impossible situations and flips them on their heads to make a way for His people. The book of Esther is a sparkling example of how God moves in unexpected and miraculous ways, like Haman, who made a gallows for Mordecai but ended up hanging on them himself. Things looked pretty bleak for the Jews of Esther's time, right up until everything changed. When you look at all of the impossible things in your life, remember that there's a God who is greater than every situation that you've ever faced or ever will face. And after He's flipped your impossible situation on its head, it'll be your turn to celebrate and remember the greatness of our God. You've been listening to Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. This is a ministry out of Calvary Galveston in Galveston, Texas. If you're around, we would love to see you Sunday morning at 10 or Wednesday evenings at 7. Our services are pretty laid back, so come just as you are. And if you can't make it, you can always head over to Facebook and find our live stream. If you're looking to donate to a worthy cause, consider Bread for the Broken, where we help people find hope and new life in Jesus. You can find donation information as well as messages and more on our website at breadforthebroken.com. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. Well, we're out of time. We hope you found new hope in today's message. We loved being a part of your day, and we'll see you right here again next time on Bread for the Broken.